it becomes actually fairly obvious what the human body is designed to run on. And, um, you know, it's not, it's not frosted flakes and skim milk. Let's, let's put it that way. They regularly refer to Alzheimer's disease as type 3 diabetes, diabetes of the brain, or brain insulin resistance. We are what we call overfed and undernourished. So we're not starving for calories, we're not starving for energy in our diet, but we're starving for nutrients. The number one driver of high blood pressure in most people is high insulin. It has nothing to do with salt or sodium in the diet. Which is Insulin changes the way the kidneys hold on to minerals and electrolytes, including sodium. Brian Muncy is probably the smartest guy I know. Trust me, Muncy is the nutrition guy. Ryan Muncy's out there trying to make the world better for all of us. The Optimal Performance Podcast is bold, edgy, creative, entertaining, and epic. Ryan Muncy is my go-to guy. Ryan Muncy is first guy I call. making people's lives better. Ryan Muncy's an innovator. You are listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. Amy Berger, welcome to episode number 140. Hey, Ryan. I'm happy to be here. Oh, we are excited to talk to you. We are speeding up the intros on the OPP, and I have been tinkering with the idea of having guests submit to me before the interview their bio in 140 characters or less. Amy, you are a Twitter badass, so I'm just swiping your existing Twitter bio. If you want to edit this or add anything to it, feel free. But it says low-carb, high-fat, keto, paleo, nutritionist, and writer, procrastinating novelist, uh, United, States Air, United States Air Force veteran, rusty on the sacks, introvert in all caps, but first coffee. All right, Amy, anything you want to add to that? Uh, no, that about sums it up. Um, you know, low carb nutrition, veteran, uh, want to be novelist and coffee. That's pretty much, um, all people need to know about me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like you and I could nerd out on coffee, introversion and nutrition forever, but we need to record this podcast. So first of all, I'll just say thank you for your service. And I'm sure most of our audience would agree with that. So you kind of have a, a reputation as being a straight shooter. So give it to us straight as leaders or educators. What are we getting wrong when it comes to nutrition and helping the public eat better? Oh, you mean within the low carb keto world or at, you know, in general nutrition? How about both? Start, start with the high level and then, you know, in the low carb keto paleo world specifically. Um, well, in general, um, it's hard to say that there's one thing we've gotten wrong, but maybe it's in letting and I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist i hate to be a conspiracy theorist but i can say it's maybe in letting some of these vested monetary and political interests take hold of health policy and nutrition policy and the dietary guidelines because when you understand the science when you understand the actual physiology of digestion, of metabolism, of what happens when you eat certain foods, it becomes actually fairly obvious what the human body is designed to run on. And, um, you know, it's not, it's not frosted flakes and skim milk. Let's, let's put it that way. Um, so it's, it's hard to pinpoint one thing that we're getting wrong, but I would say maybe that kind of making these blanket recommendations with very little appreciation for the actual way the body works. You know, there's what sounds good on paper and there's what makes uh, us feel good ethically and morally, but the body doesn't care about that. You know, your pancreas doesn't care about that. Your, uh, you know, insulin receptors don't care about anything else. So um, within the low carb world is, and that's where sort of my passion is, is kind of in injecting sanity into it. I try to be a voice of reason because it's, it's fantastic that low carb and keto and paleo style diets have like really exploded in popularity over the last couple of years. I mean, there's so much more out there on them than there ever was, but unfortunately with the expanding popularity, 
becomes a ton of misinformation or um, if not misinformation and misinterpretation of the information. And it's funny because it's not usually the researchers and the experts and the PhDs who are publishing the papers who are misinterpreting. They're presenting facts, they're presenting evidence, they're present, you know, presenting data and study results. And it's the lay people that want to implement this diet in their own life that are kind of taking this information and turning it into something that it isn't, whether that is people being scared of eating enough protein because they think it's going to, you know, quote unquote, turn into sugar or people thinking that they can eat as much fat as they want, as long as they keep carbs lower, even people thinking that they absolutely have to be on a ketogenic diet. You know, not everybody requires strict medically therapeutic ketosis to be healthy and to function optimally. So I think in the low carb and keto world, we're getting a lot wrong, but some of what we're getting wrong is just becoming as close-minded and, and zealot-like as in other nutritional camps. And I, I try mm. to just kind of be a voice of reason in all of it. I like that word zealot. That, that definitely describes a lot of what I've seen in the space. All right. So, so let's talk about some of these misinterpretations, um, whether it be people afraid to eat too much protein or uh, a lot of people are probably eating too much fat. How do we know what's the right amount for each person on an individual basis? Oh, that's a good question. It's, it, it's hard to answer. I mean, the protein really should be based on somebody's body weight. And, you know, you'll hear all kinds of different things that, you know, it should be based on your lean body mass as opposed to your total body weight. Um, you know, some people will say it should be based on your goal weight. I think it probably makes sense just, just to keep things easy so that the everyday person can understand and get some kind of ballpark and not make themselves crazy with the math base your protein intake on your desired body weight. Like if you weigh 300 pounds, but you want to weigh 180, base your protein intake on 180. And it could be anywhere from, you know, one gram per pound to 1.2, 1.5 grams per pound. It could even be a little bit less. Um, I just find that, you know, this, this point, everybody quotes this number 0.8 grams per kilogram of either body weight or lean body weight. And that is the bare minimum of protein to not waste away. That was never intended as the optimal amount. That was intended as like the bare minimum you needed to, to be healthy and, and to be in what we call nitrogen balance, which is you're not breaking down your existing protein stores, be they muscle or bone or connective tissue. So I think everybody's afraid of going above that 0.8 grams per kilogram, but they don't realize that that was actually intended as a rock bottom minimum, not the goal amount. Um, is that, is that clear as mud? <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's a great answer. I mean, I think that is, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that 0.8 number because I think that's one that's thrown around a lot, especially as you move from paleo into keto camps. It is. It is. And it's, you know, it's a little bit variable. I think most people have to work hard to eat what I would call, quote unquote, too much protein. You have to put in effort to eat a lot of protein unless you're doing it from shakes or bars. or th If you're eating real food, you have to work to eat, you know, 180 grams of protein from chicken or pork or beef. Because remember, you know, we're not talking grams of food by weight. We're talking grams of protein. Um, so it's, it's a lot of food. And everybody says that fat is the most satiating macronutrient. Like if you're hungry, eat more fat. Fat keeps you full. I personally don't find that. And I think a lot of other people don't find that. Protein fills me up like crazy, which is why I think it's so hard to eat too much protein because it's very filling. Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, I, no, I'm just, I'm kind of laughing. And in my head, I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you 100% because you know, if you think about uh, like all these food challenges and, and I'm in no way endorsing, you know, trying to eat a 72 ounce steak at, at, a, at some restaurant, but you know, there's a reason that those challenges are, you know, how much meat can you eat before you throw in the towel as opposed to, you know, here's a whole bunch of butter or here's a whole bunch of fat. You know, that, it, it, that's exactly what you're saying. I mean, protein will fill you up. It is more satiating than any of the other macronutrients. Right. But I, I also think, 
that it does vary. You know, I, I think people do. We have obviously some fundamental biochemical pathways in everybody that work the same way. But I just think how people react to things are different. And nobody should feel like they're doing it wrong or something's wrong with their body if they find that fat does fill them up. Maybe there's somebody out there who does better on slightly less protein and more fat. And there's someone else that does better on slightly more protein and less fat. Um, I think one of the things we run into is when somebody wants to take what works for them and extrapolate it on some internet forum and say, this is what you should do. This is what everybody should do because it works for me. Right. You know, because we've got, we've got a lot of very young active lean males who could eat 60 to 80 grams of carbohydrate and still be in ketosis, still lose weight, still be buff. And then you've got a 212 pound postmenopausal woman who is not going to be in ketosis at more than 40 grams of carbs a day. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. So while we're talking about amounts, let's kind of dive in a little bit more on, you know, how much fat is too much and, you know, is there an upper limit? And, and, um, if, there, and if there is, how do we figure that out? That is another good question. And I, is there an upper limit? I mean, other than someone just getting sick and like not feeling well, um, prob the upper limit is in terms of maybe if you are struggling with fat loss and you're eating a lot of fat, um, the upper limit might be, I, I mean, it's so, I can't give an exact number. It really is going to vary from person to person. And I think some people will find that depending on the type of fat they eat, they'll have different effects. Like people that eat a lot of coconut oil or MCT oil, when you overdo it, some people will have loose stools or an upset stomach. You know, they call that disaster pants. <laughs> um, that's your sign that you've probably overdone it. But I don't think that kind of effect doesn't seem to happen with too much fat on like a really fatty steak or a fatty pork chop. Um, right. The, the, the short know. and medium chains are, are almost self-regulating in that way. I, yeah, I guess, except you, you only know you've over, overdone it after you've already overdone it, you know? Right. <laughs> um, so I, it's, it's hard to say. I don't know if we can say there it's, there's too much. Okay, fair enough. Uh, so sticking with sort of the, the low-carb trend, talk to us a little bit about some of the recent research that has shown uh, insulin resistance being linked to Alzheimer's? Oh, well, um, they regularly refer to Alzheimer's disease as type 3 diabetes, diabetes of the brain, or brain insulin resistance. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny because when we talk about obesity or heart disease or type 2 diabetes, we take it for granted that there's a huge role, if not a driving role for diet and lifestyle in those issues. We don't, we don't even question that that's true. We just take that as a fact. Nobody, nobody argues otherwise. And yet when it comes to Alzheimer's disease, we just throw our hands up like, oh, we have no idea where this is coming from. We're just clueless. This, this couldn't possibly be diet and lifestyle. Like, really? <laughs> I mean, and I don't mean to make light of it, but that's, that's the state of where we're at right now with, with conventional medicine that, right. you know, it's, it's, taken as fact that diet and lifestyle play a role in these other conditions. And yet when it comes to Alzheimer's, we're looking for some kind of genetic mutation or some type of silver bullet, like infectious type agent, like a, a you know, tuberculosis, you know, microbe kind of a thing or, or a virus. Um, and there may be some role for some of that. You know, there's, there's a very famous doctor who just came out with a book that's looking at some of that, but the primary thing going wrong in the Alzheimer's brain is that affected areas have lost the ability to get sufficient energy from glucose. Alzheimer's disease is an energy crisis in the brain. It is a fuel shortage and these, these cells basically starve to death. They atrophy, they wither, you can see them on, on brain scans, you can see the, the, the matter of the brain shrinking and they die. And this is Alzheimer's disease. And it's, I mean, I'm oversimplifying. I, I wrote a book where I talk about the details, but that is the primary issue. And, and there's many, many reasons as to why that might be happening, but that is the fundamental thing that is resulting in the memory loss and the personality changes and the behavioral disturbances. You know, when you, when you get tired, what, what happens when we get tired, right? We get clumsy, we make mistakes we don't normally make. 
well, what do we think happens when the brain gets tired, when the brain literally does not have enough energy? The, the very logical result of that is what we see in Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, no, that's a great kind of way of thinking about it, um, putting it in a perspective that people can understand, you know, without having actually to have Alzheimer's. So you mentioned that, that there are many factors that sort of play a role in this development or the, the energy crisis that exists. I know this is sort of debatable in the Alzheimer's research circles, but in, in your mind, you know, do you think it's insulin resistance? Is it mitochondrial damage? Is it inflammation? You know, what is the sort of, what, what's the lead domino? Do we know? Um, I think it's all of the above. And the lead domino, I think it's a cascade. I don't think it's one single thing. I think it's a confluence that has a great deal to do with people exceeding their individual carbohydrate tolerance um, and it's, it's a combination because it's not just chronically high insulin or chronically high glucose over a number of years or decades. It's combining that with, you know, so many people, we are what we call overfed and undernourished. So we're not starving for calories. We're not starving for energy in our diet, but we're starving for nutrients. And it's, you know, either overt or subclinical B12 deficiency, choline deficiency, zinc deficiency, omega-3, you know, a relative um, insufficiency of omega-3s. Like it's all these things that contribute to the body and the brain's ability not only to metabolize glucose, but some of these nutrients are actually needed for the physical structure of the brain. The brain is, is loaded with these omega-3 fats. I mean, the brain is basically this blob of fat and cholesterol that sits inside your skull. And you need vitamin B12 to make myelin, which is something that kind of surrounds and insulates all your nerve cells, the neurons. Mm -hmm. And it's if you look at, at, at our current diet, and it's not, not just the diet, but a lot of the pharmaceutical drugs that our elders take and have been taking for years and in some cases decades, whether it's statin drugs or prescription antacids, all of these things impair the body's ability to either synthesize critical essential things that we need like cholesterol, or they inhibit the body's ability to absorb and assimilate some of these critical nutrients like the... Um, the prescription antacids specifically really, really mess with B12. They mess with zinc, iron, magnesium. I mean, all of these, these nutrients don't exist in a vacuum. You know, we need vitamins and minerals because they are required players in a lot of the biochemical reactions that literally give us energy. They, you know, at the cellular level, they are the parts of the enzymes that convert carbohydrate and fat into energy. Um, well, just real quick, I'll interject for you guys listening. We, we covered in depth the over-the-counter and prescription heartburn and acid uh, medications, uh, proton, um, proton pump inhibitors uh, with Dr. Michael Murray a few episodes ago. That one was all about digestive health. So if you haven't heard that one, definitely go back and check that episode out. Um, so... Oh, that, that's, that's great that you've covered that because pe people don't realize that, no. you know, those drugs, they, they don't just, you know, reduce your stomach acid. Like your stomach, your stomach is supposed to be acidic. It's acidic because you need the acid <laughs> right. to liberate all these nutrients from your food. But <laughs> right. I, I want to, you know, before I forget, I want to specify that I was saying like some of these drugs that our elders are taking, but it's not just older people that get this illness, that get Alzheimer's. You know, we, we, they used to joke and call it old timers disease, not just Alzheimer's, but old timers. Right. right. But we're, we're not talking about people in their eighties and nineties anymore. We're talking about people in their fifties and sixties. And, um, they can, you know, I said earlier that it's a glucose metabolism problem in the brain and they can measure this in people at risk for Alzheimer's as young as their thirties and forties at that young an age the decline in glucose metabolism in the brain is already observable. I mean, it's not something you can get done at your regular doctor's office. It's a special scan. Um, but so this is, you know, <laughs> all exactly what I was going to ask. How do we get that done? Yeah. I mean, it's a PET scan. It's a, you know, it's a brain scan basically where they, right. they inject you with a, a radio labeled form of glucose so that they can measure where it's going and they can see the rate at which the brain takes it up. And they can see that in these people at risk, it's already compromised because you don't wake up all of a sudden one day with Alzheimer's disease, you know, this is something right. that happens over the course of years and decades. And so 
If that process is starting when you're 30, you're going to be in big trouble come 55 and 60. So given that it is uh, a, a disease that develops over the course of a lifetime, what are some things that listeners can do to reduce risk factors? I think one of the most important things we can do is stay within our own individual carbohydrate tolerance. And that's going to differ from person to person. You know, some people are going to have to go really low. Some people are going to be able to go higher, especially if they're active and they're kind of just more metabolically healthy in general. Um, but the thing with Alzheimer's is it's not just the glucose. So it's not just, you know, if you have one of those home glucometers or you monitor your A1C every couple of months at the doctor, that's important. I mean, it's important to keep your blood sugar in a normal range, but there are millions of people walking around, like without exaggeration, millions of people whose blood glucose is normal, but their insulin is sky high. And it's the high insulin keeping the blood sugar in check. So you think you're healthy, your doctor thinks you're healthy, nobody suspects diabetes until it's, it's been going on so long that you become insulin resistant or right. you start manifesting other signs and symptoms of high insulin, even in the absence of high glucose. And somebody would actually measure your insulin and say, wow, Mr. Jones, you really have a problem. That's a really, really good point. Um, how do we monitor insulin? You kind at this point, you have to get it just measured at the doctor. There are no okay. home insulin meters like there are with glucose. That's like a gazillion dollar industry <laughs> waiting to happen. I, I, there are people right. working on it because they know. Okay. okay. Yeah, they I was going to say, let's, let's dollar idea. Right. Yeah. Right. I think that I, I, I don't really understand the science of it, but I've been told that the reason the home meter doesn't exist for insulin yet is because just the chemical assay that they have to use to, to measure the insulin in the blood is much more complex and for glucose and they can't put it into like a little device like that. Right. I'm sure, I'm sure it'll come out soon. And when it does, it's going to be a game changer because there's, like I said, millions of people who think they're totally safe. They're, they're, right. they're in the safe zone. They're in the clear and yet their insulin is through the roof. And it's um, in Alzheimer's disease and in many, many other issues, whether it's PCOS or gout or cardiovascular disease, erectile dysfunction, BPH, all these other things are driven by high insulin, regardless of whether your blood glucose is high. So as you're talking through this, I mean, I can envision a lot of people who are, are, are kind of telling themselves and, and believing you know, if they don't have the information that you just said, you know, well, I'm not eating a lot of carbs or I'm eating what I think is my minimum effective dose, then they think they're in the clear. But but really, without knowing that insulin number, we, we can't know that for sure, right? Right. I mean, if you can just get a fasting insulin test at the doctor, you just have to ask for it. And um, in my opinion, it should be a routine part of standard blood work. And it's not. It should be. Um, and if you ask for it, you're going to say, I want a fasting insulin test. And your doctor's going to say, you mean glucose, right? And you say, no, insulin, you have to insist. Um, right. But the thing is, if your fasting insulin is high, then you know there's a problem. Right. If it's not high, you don't know that there's not. Exactly. Because right. it, it may be that your fasting level is normal, but in like after you eat, after meals, it's going up high and it's staying high for most of the day. It just so happens that overnight it's coming back down. But you would have, there would be signs and symptoms in most people, whether it's things that you would notice on, a, on an actual panel, a metabolic panel, when it's looked at in detail, or, you know, there are skin tags, um, you know, very stubborn weight loss, high blood pressure, like there's other things that might tip you off, but not in everybody. And I, right. I think it's, it's still worth getting tested. Right. Right. That's really, really good stuff there. Um, well, let's shift gears a little bit. We'll kind of move away from Alzheimer's and, and uh, insulin. Let's talk about sodium. Uh, it's an essential mineral that is incredibly misunderstood. Uh, you've been fortunate enough to collaborate a little bit with the author of a uh, recent book, The Salt Fix. Talk to us a little bit about uh, sodium. You, you had a really good point on one of your blogs that hyperinsulinemia, not salt, is linked to uh, hypertension. Right. Um, the number one driver of high blood pressure in most people 
is high insulin. It has nothing to do with salt or sodium in the diet, which is why when people go on a low sodium diet, it usually does almost nothing for their blood pressure. Um, you cannot correct hypertension by reducing sodium. And in most, the, the majority of people, you cannot induce high blood pressure by increasing your salt intake. Um, we, we just, we kind of have to, if, if people listening to this have, have gotten to the point where they have wrapped their minds around the fact that the quote unquote experts are wrong about saturated fat and cholesterol and red meat and all that, you have to also be willing to accept the possibility that they're totally wrong about sodium. Right, right. I think most of our listeners are, are at that point. Um, something else that you wrote that, that I, I absolutely love this, but and we touched on this a little bit earlier with protein, but you talked about how salt and protein, unlike sugar, have cutoff points. Explain that for our listeners. Yeah, so with, um, with salt, you know, it's, it's almost like when your body needs salt, salt tastes good. You want something salty. You could even drink. Like if you've gone for a run or something in the heat and you come back, and I mean, not to be gross or anything, I sweat like a pig when I work out. Like when I come back from a workout, I am drenched. And I could drink like a cup of salt water because it just the salt is so nourishing to me and my body needs it. But then you get to a point where salt becomes almost revolting. You don't want it anywhere. Like, oh, that's too salty. Um, and I feel like we, when you listen to the body, when, when maybe the signal from sugar is a little bit less, you're able to interpret the signals from something like salt more. You get to the point where you either want some or you don't want some. And it's not like with sugar where I feel like there's really no cutoff point. You know, I think in the, in the blog post, I'd said something about cookies that I'll just eat and eat and eat. And the only reason I'll ever stop eating something sugary is because I'm physically sick because I feel right. like I'm going to explode. Right. But salt, I don't, I don't, you just stop eating it because it just simply isn't appealing anymore. Yeah. I, and, and I mean, that resonated with me. I mean, I, I, I thought that was really cool the way you kind of compared those and used that as, as an, an analogy. Yeah, thanks. I think if, if people don't, you know, going back to the insulin thing, the reason insulin drives hypertension so much is because insulin changes the way the kidneys hold on to minerals and electrolytes, including sodium. When your um, insulin is high, it prompts the kidneys to retain a lot more sodium. And when you retain sodium, you retain a lot more water and you retain more of that water in your actual blood. Now you have a higher blood volume passing through the same amount of blood vessels. The pressure is going to go up. And when, you, um, when your insulin levels are very low and your kidneys dump all that sodium, you, um, you need more sodium because your, your body just is not retaining it even as it, as it should. And you actually need more. You need to deliberately either add salt to your food or eat foods that are already salty, like bacon or sausages or olives or things like that. Um, especially if you work out, there's a lot of people who um, do a lot of intense lifting or something on a very low carb diet. And they know if they don't get enough salt, that's mm -hmm. when they start to get headaches, they get dizzy. Um, that's when maybe they're just lifting and they feel like they just don't have the power that they normally do. They need more salt. Right. Uh, what about some of the, um, oh, I, I never know how to pronounce it. Is it sole or sole, S-O-L-E, the, the water where you soak uh, like sea salt crystals in water and then you add a tablespoon or two of that to the water that you drink? Do you have thoughts on that? Have you heard about this? I have never heard of that. <laughs> okay. I mean, I just think, I think you could just, you could just honestly add a pinch of salt to your water or just liberally salt your food. I mean, people love to make things really complicated. And um, the fact is you don't, you don't even need the fancy pink Himalayan black, red, million-dollar salt. You can oh, get, like, good old white. <laughs> oh, my God. God forbid. You just go to your supermarket and get, like, table salt. Morton's, you know, get it. You might as well get the iodized kind. We all need iodine. Um, what you need is the sodium, and the well, sodium is in all the salt, whether it's cheap regular salt or some other salt. The one thing that I will point out is I've noticed that a lot of those cheap salts are actually cut with dextrose. So maybe don't do the cheap stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's if if you want, I think it would be like a minuscule amount. But if 
if, if people are concerned about that, certainly, I mean, I do prefer the Redmond real salt or the Celtic gray salt just because I think they taste better and they, mm-hmm. they do have small amounts of other trace minerals. Right. And if you're going to eat salt, you might as well eat a salt that has some other minerals in it. But, you know, I don't want people to um, become obsessed with the food purity thing. Right. What about some of the other mineral deficiencies that we see if someone is on a extremely low carb diet for a long period of time, uh, magnesium or potassium? I think it's funny because some people don't have to supplement at all and they feel fine and others find that they feel better if they supplement, especially, you know, if somebody is experiencing leg cramps or muscle soreness, you know, soreness and cramps not associated with overexertion at the gym or with an injury, just sort of like feeling sore or tight out of nowhere. Um, and I don't, I don't really know why that is that some people need it and some people don't, you know, it, it could even come down to like genetic polymorphisms and some of those pathways. But I think it's just, I don't know, some people, some people do need to supplement, but that's, I mean, that's a fairly well-known thing that on a low carb diet, you might need some of those, um, some of those nutrients. Right. All right. Um, something else I want to ask you about the, this carnivore diet. So this is something that has popped up on my radar recently. Um, uh, I've drawn a blank. I, I believe it's Sean Baker. Um, is, uh, he's an MD, an orthopedic surgeon who is a proponent of this uh, all meat diet. They're doing a 90 day experiment and we're actually going to try to get him on the podcast at the end of their experiment so that we can go over some of the results and the, the lab testing. But there are other proponents of this, I guess you, I don't want to call it a diet, but this way of eating. And, and some of the people that are proponents of it are arguing that the small gut that we have as humans is a trade-off that allows us to have a large brain and that it is designed for very few to even no greens. While we have other people who, and, and, and on the other side of that, they argue that, you know, like a, a gorilla or an ape has a larger gut, a smaller brain, and is designed to eat a lot of leafy greens. I don't see how that could be optimal for gut health. Uh, and, and I'm sure there are some other potential downsides to that. What are your thoughts on this? Um, I am fascinated by the zero carb thing. I'm just going to admit it. I am totally fascinated for a number of reasons. Um, I think it's, it's pretty well, I I don't know if I can say well established or maybe just well believed, well spread in, um, you know, evolutionary biology, whatever anthropology circles that uh, the trade off, there is some degree of trade off in terms of like our primate ancestors that we have a larger brain and a smaller gut and we so we we spend a lot more energy in our brain than on digestion which is why you know we we are not designed to live on a diet of raw plant matter of raw leaves and you know it's just not it's not the way we're designed that cannot be argued um cooking also seemed to have played a role in that like there's there's some you know books that have been written about that that it's not just the move toward more animal protein and fat, but also having cooked not just the animal protein and fat, but starting to cook some of the starchier tuber vegetables and even cook some of the greens, we know that some of those nutrients are a lot more bioavailable and those foods become much easier to digest when they're cooked. So that being said, um, I cannot really comment as to whether or not zero carb is optimal. I tend to not think that that's the real true human diet or that's the way that any of us, you know, is sort of supposed to eat all the time. But that being said, what I love about the zero carbers, and and first of all, I I like that at least I've spoken to a number of them. I read a lot of their stuff. None of them strikes me as any kind of you know, zealot, like we said earlier, like unfortunately in the vegan community, you get a lot of people not just insisting that this is the way that they eat and they love it, but this is the way everyone must eat. If you don't eat vegan, you're, you're a murderer. You're a terrible person. (laughs) You deserve to die. Your children deserve to die. Yeah. 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 No, no carnivore has said that the carnivores and, and Sean Baker is a great example of it. They're more like, Hey, 
I feel great doing this. I've taken care of X, Y, and Z problems that I had for 20 years until now. I feel like a million bucks. Why don't you give this a try? And that's where they end it. They don't shove it in anyone's face. They don't try to convince anyone to do it. They just say, try it if you want. And if you don't, I don't care. No skin off my back. Um, but why, why I'm really fascinated by the strategy is because you know, those of us in the low carbon keto and paleo communities have already um, accepted that so much of what we were told or what we thought we knew about human health and nutrition was dead wrong. So even starting from already being there, the zero carbers are proving that even some of the things that we hold dear in the low carbon keto communities might not be true, such as, like you were saying, don't we need fiber for the gut health? Don't we need to feed the microbiome? Well, no, it kind of looks like we don't. Now, it's a fairly small number of people that are doing this. Um, there are a couple that have been doing it for many years, though, and they seem to be okay. If we take them at their word online, you know, none of them have any severe problems. None of them are dying from scurvy. They're not dying from rickets. They're not getting osteoporosis. So there's, it's fascinating because it, it makes us question all of you know, all of the nutrient requirements that we have, like, you know, right. human beings, in order to be healthy, you need X milligrams of this and X micrograms of this, whether it's chromium or magnesium or boron or whatever. These people, I mean, we have to understand that those recommendations were made based off of people that were eating a mixed diet. It is very well possible that the, the, the requirements for some of these nutrients are different if you are eating zero carbohydrate. You know what I mean? Like, we're, yeah. we're still going to need some of everything. I mean, like I said earlier, all of these vitamins and minerals exist because they play roles in different pathways and different mechanisms. But let's say, based on a zero carb diet, and by zero carb, we mean no plant material, whatever, no fruit, no vegetables, right. no nuts. Yeah, that's no nuts, no seeds. Yeah. yeah, like not even wine. Some, some, some of them drink coffee, some of them drink tea, some have wine. Mostly it's just animal food. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, for people not familiar with it, basically the diet is meat and water. It's the dead opposite of veganism. It's no plant. It's, it's only food from the animal kingdom. Some of them do dairy. A lot of them don't. Some of them do cheese, but it's, it's like eggs, steak. You know, it's it's just animal food. So they're not getting any plant fiber. They're not getting any of the like, you know, curcumin and resveratrol and all these other sort of phytochemicals and plant compounds that we think are so helpful. And they're all doing fine. And, and, and I will say, though, clearly, when you look at the whatever we want to do, the Mediterraneans, the Okinawans, who these long lived healthy populations, none of not only were none of them doing zero carb. None of them were doing keto. These people were not on a ketogenic diet, but um, I, did I just lose my whole train of thought? I don't know. But Talking we'll, about, well, what was I going to say about these long-lived populations? I, I think, yeah, you were going blue zones, Okinawans, that none of them were keto, none of them were, you know, zero carb. Oh, right, right. So, they they all eat some combination of plant and animal foods. None of them were zero carb, but none of them were vegan. Um, I just I so I what I'm trying to say is uh, uh, some of the zero carb folks are starting to inch toward the territory of saying that all plants are toxic, regardless. You know, mm -hmm. all the all the the nutrients that we think we have, like for example, things in broccoli and and the cruciferous vegetables, the sulfur compounds that that are supposedly so beneficial for cancer or different kinds of other de quote unquote detoxification um, that those are they're, they're chemical pesticides. They may, they may seem to do these helpful things in the human body, but though, that's not what they're there for. Those are to protect those plants against predators. But all of that being said, the, the healthiest, long, most long-lived, robust people all over the earth have had plants in their diet, they, but they've had animals too. So I, I am not so quick to jump on the bandwagon of saying that plants are bad across the board. I think they're, they're not. But I think the zero-carb intervention, in addition to making us rethink and, and question so much of what we thought we knew, I think it is phenomenally effective for very specific reasons. And, and those include people with very severe um, digestive problems, 
things with like IBS, Crohn's, colitis, that stuff, most of these people find a great improvement if they go keto or, or paleo or low carb, but they don't go all the way. They're better, but they're not completely resolved. And they find that when they actually remove all the plant, all the indigestible stuff that just builds up in the colon and has to be passed through, when they get rid of that, they do much better. And a lot of people with um, anxiety or mood issues and some people with um, binge eating disorder, because when you eliminate, it's easier for most people, myself included, to abstain completely from a certain food than it is to try to say, well, I'll just have a little bit. So if you have a rule, quote unquote, where I don't eat any, any plant whatsoever, because all the foods that people binge on are sort of, we could say they're plant foods, right? They're potato chips, they're... Um, Cookies, they come from wheat, they come from corn, they come from rice. Nobody's binging on pork chops. Nobody's binging on filet mignon. Um, and so I think when you have a rule that's just, I eat none of that ever, it's just not on the menu, it's not allowable, it kind of corrects the issues that people have with whatever trigger foods they have because nobody's trigger food is chicken breast. There's a lot does, in there. Does that make any yeah. sense? No, no, it makes it makes perfect sense. I mean, I, I, you know, I've I've been there um, and and worked with a lot of people on the the binging side. I mean, I would certainly agree that nobody is all the foods we binge on are certainly processed foods. Um, right. I, I don't know that I've ever seen anybody binge on sweet potatoes um, or beef. Right. No. Yeah, they're not but, binging on vegetables, but they're binging right. on foods that come from the plant kingdom right, in right, that right. sense. Like, like yeah. I said, they're wheat based, they're corn based. You know. Right. No, I, I understand that. Um, so, you know, you, you mentioned like things like sulforaphane and uh, some of these other phytochemicals uh, that are extremely beneficial. I, I mean, if it turns out that those are not necessary. I mean, that would be a huge paradigm shift. I mean, we, we've, there's so many studies in recent years about some of these things, you know, being able to fight cancer and help lower blood sugar and, you know, all these other things that are, are phenomenal and, you know, potentially beneficial for health. So I think the, the thing that in my head that I'm thinking about is, okay, these people are doing this and they're fine, but, you know, fine is not optimal. And I like that you pointed out that all of these blue zone people, you know, that, that have been the healthiest and live the longest all have some plants in their diet. None of them are, uh, you know, the, the pendulum does not exist at one end of the spectrum or the other for those folks. Right. But, and see, I, and I want to lean that way because I, 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 I do try to be that voice of reason, but I'm not beyond acknowledging the possibility that, because this, this is the argument that the zero carbers might make, right? Okay, yes, all of these long-lived blue zone type people eat plants and they eat animals. Maybe they would be even healthier. Maybe they would live even <laughs> longer if they didn't sure. eat the plants, you know what right, I mean? Like, right. and, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm not above acknowledging that possibility, right, but- Right, that's a know, valid argument. Know. Yeah, um, so I guess, I mean, how would we know if, I mean, obviously if, if you eat zero plants and, and I, I don't, I don't really expect you to have this answer right now, but just, you know, thoughts, or, you know, how would we know if some of those missing minerals, um, or vitamins or, uh, plant compounds, you know, how, how would we know if we were experiencing deficiencies or, or, or seeing, you know, negative impact from, from a lack of those in our diet and, and also the microbiome issue? Um, I think it, those deficiencies would manifest eventually. It might take time, kind of like on a vegan diet. A lot of people who go vegan feel great initially. And when they start to not feel so great is over the long term. Because, you know, the body is pretty robust. The body does have stores of certain nutrients, and it, it takes a while to really deplete them. So um, I think these issues would show up eventually. I just think it's going to take time in, in some people. And there are some people, again, assuming we take them at their word that they really truly are eating zero plant material whatsoever. There are people that have been doing this for over 10 years, and they seem fine. Um, so I, if something was going to manifest it probably already would have. Um, and, and as for the, the biome, you know, I, I don't know what to make of the gut biome. I think 
that we know much less about it than than people think we do. And, and to pretend like we know anything about optimizing it or what an optimal flora looks like, I just, I don't, I don't think we're there yet. And, and all I can say is that these people doing the zero carb diet, you know, they're having bowel movements. It's not like they're not pooping because they have no fiber in their diet. You know, how does a lion poop? How does a tiger poop? They still put, no, not that I'm saying we are obligate, like I'm not saying we are strict right. carnivores, right. but somewhere in nature, there exists a mechanism by which an animal that eats very little to no plant matter still defecates just fine, you know? Um, so I, that, and, and the biome thing kind of goes hand in hand with, with your question before about the, you know, the sulforaphane and the curcumin and all that. When they do the studies on some of those compounds that we think are beneficial, they are usually dosing them in amounts so much more concentrated than you would get from eating broccoli or from eating, you know, putting, uh, putting, putting turmeric on your food. Mm -hmm. And we have supplements now. We have supplements where you can get very concentrated doses of this. But is that a natural thing that would have had? Not that I'm saying natural is always better. You know, if you are in a very severe disease state, you need an intervention that is maybe man-made and it's not natural. But you could not get. You couldn't drink, you would die from liver cirrhosis before you got enough resveratrol from wine to make a dent. You know what I mean? Or like right. you would have the smell of curry coming out of your pores if you ate enough turmeric to have that, what we call a pharmacological dose on right. your cells. Right. Um, so I just, it, some of what the zero carbers, you know, argue and what, what I, I think it's a legitimate argument. I think we don't know, but it's worth exploring is that some of those compounds, it may not be that they are beneficial on their own. It's that they are counteracting damage that is done by the carbohydrate or by, you know, too much omega-6 oil, that kind of thing. Whereas if somebody's not creating that damage in the first place, the damage does not have to be undone. So they're not, they're not missing anything by not having those cruciferous vegetables and by not having those like the allium vegetables, the onions, the garlic. You know what I mean? I, I do. Um, and that, that's fascinating. I don't it know is. if it's true, but it's, it's, it's a fascinating concept. It's incredibly fascinating. I think this is, this is the most fascinating thing that has popped up on my radar in terms of nutrition or, or food in years. Um, I think it's really cool. I am actually considering trying it. I don't know if I would do a full 90 days. Uh, what are your thoughts? Would, would you try it? Would you be willing to do that as an experiment or would you rather wait and see? Oh, I actually want to do it. I just don't know that I can. I would love to do it. And I, I, I'm with you. I don't know that I would do 90. I would commit to 30. And then, you know, if I like it, I would keep going. But I'm... I would like to do it. I don't trust myself to do it, but I, I, I will get there at some point. I'm sure. I think it's worth, it's worth trying, you know, why not? All right. Well, I'll make a deal with you when you do it for 30 days, let me know and I'll do it with you. But okay. I also, I also would want to know what lab values you would want to track and monitor as you did that experiment. Right. Oh, you want to know now or then? Uh, I mean, what off the top of your head, uh, but I'm sure, you know, if you were actually going to do it, you might have a couple that may not come to mind right now. Yeah. I mean, I would I would do the same things I would recommend for anyone eating any diet, which is like that basic metabolic panel, you know, a, a basic CBC, which is just the normal blood test you get. Um, obviously, you know, the triglycerides, the A1C, the glucose, the insulin, all that stuff. Um, you know, maybe just like C-reactive protein, homocysteine, those kind of inflammatory markers. I don't know that I would go super in depth with even even anything like, you know, your, your listeners are pretty savvy, like the LDL particle size and all that, because I don't know if if you and your listeners are familiar with Dave Feldman and the work he's doing with cholesterol, but he's kind of proving that everything we thought we knew about cholesterol is so much so much more wrong than we even already knew. And um, so I don't even know what that testing would tell us, if anything, to kind right. of go down all those cholesterol rabbit holes. But um, I need to try to get him on the show as well. That's a, a, that's a yeah, good, he's great. good name. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, Amy, it's, it's almost time to let you go. Um, I, I know I told you this. I don't know if I said it at the beginning of recording or before we press record, but your blog is amazing. Some people binge watch Netflix. I could binge read your blog. Um, 
and I, I know I told you this, that, that I read it way longer than was necessary in preparation for our interview today. So tell our listeners where they can go to get more of you. Uh, well, that's, um, I could not hear a nicer compliment. I am um, a writer by trade first. I have a bachelor's degree in creative writing and I have my master's in nutrition. So um, that's a really nice thing to hear. Um, thank you. So it's Tuit Nutrition, T-U-I-T Nutrition.com. And um, my blog posts are usually very long. I, uh, I joke about it a lot that um, I, I, I hope that I'm giving someone with a lot of time to kill in a cubicle something to read during the day. But I mean, they're long because I, I try to cover the details because I see the questions that people ask online and I see the confusion. And, and if, if I can take away the confusion by explaining every detail, then that's what I'm going to do. And I'll, I'll answer the questions before they even come up. It's also kind of... I guess I would call it tongue in cheek. I mean, I find myself laughing quite a bit and learning. I, I try. I try. I'm, I'm, I'm born and raised in New York City, so I, I have that sarcasm. I think it's like in my DNA to have that sarcasm. <laughs> oh, I like it. So to it nutrition and then you're on Twitter as well to it nutrition. Yeah, my handle is Tuit Nutrition, and I, uh, I do have a book. My book is called The Alzheimer's Antidote, and you can get it on Amazon and hopefully in brick-and-mortar stores, but it is available on Amazon. And it's, it's all about what we talked about earlier with Alzheimer's and type 2 diabetes and using a ketogenic diet as an intervention. Nice. Um, so for you guys listening, we'll have links to Amy's Twitter, her blog post, uh, her, her website, and the book on the blog post for this podcast. That'll be at naturalstacks.com. Uh, make sure you guys go there and get all of the links and resources from today's show. Also, go to iTunes, leave us a five-star review. Let us know how much you enjoy the show. We will read your review on the air. And when we do, we will hook you up with a care package to say thank you. Uh, today's ep- uh, sorry, today's review, not episode, is from Travis Brizendeen. I hope I said that right, Travis. Great wisdom, five stars. This show provides tremendous wisdom across a number of spectrums. I've listened to nearly 50 episodes with 95% of them being highly applicable. Ryan asks great questions, provides educated feedback to the guests. I appreciate the non-MD thinking and unbiased approach to learning. Uh, Travis, shoot me an email, ryan at naturalstacks.com. And I guess, uh, oh, the other thing is share the OPP. As you guys listen to this, uh, Amy dropped a ton of knowledge uh, and, and all kinds of information to follow up with, um, things to think about, things to challenge our uh, beliefs. If there's someone that you know in your life who will benefit from or, or enjoy this, make sure you share this episode with them. It's easier than ever. Just grab the share episode link from iTunes or wherever you listen. Send it to them on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, text, email, whatever. Uh, We are grateful for you guys being here and sharing it. That's how we get this message out to more people and how we help more people. That's how people like Amy get her message out and help people hopefully reduce their risk of Alzheimer's. Uh, Amy, last question. We want to know your top three tips to live optimal. Oh, oh, oh no. This is like, this is a surprise. Um, I mean, a good diet and probably some degree of a reduced carb diet doesn't have to be super strict keto, but, you know, eat real food, low-ish carb. Um, Get outside. Maybe that sounds kind of lame, but it's, I don't know. I always feel better when I get outside, Um, especially in nature, not just in the middle of like a busy city street, like get get out in the woods. Um, And you do you have to believe in what you do. You have to love what you do, whether, whether it's your profession or, um, you know, a hobby, you, you have to have a passion for something in your life because otherwise you are spinning your wheels and you're waking up day after day, watching the clock. That's awesome. Very well said, Amy, thank you so much for hanging out with us. And uh, for you guys listening, thanks for spending some time with us today. Thanks for having me.